John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 1448.DE0227, certificate number 36460. Wuppertal-Schwebebahn. Herzlich willkommen im Intercity der Deutschen Bahn nach Dresden Hauptbahnhof. Unser nächster Halt ist Wuppertal-Hauptbahnhof. Did I say that right? Wuppertal-Schwebebahn. Good job. It's fun. It is fun. You got the V right. And the, I mean, you know, neither of us are going to do a very good German accent unless we do a comical one. Wuppertal, home of the Wupper. I know that you're a public transit fan. Did you vote? So some listeners may not know this, although Futurelings certainly will celebrate it as a national holiday. But here in Seattle, we had a, a proposal to build, to extend the monorail that we constructed for the for the World's Fair in 1962, um, there was a proposal in the 1990s to extend the monorail and make it a citywide transit system. Because if you don't understand, it only goes from the fairgrounds, kind of by the Space Needle, what, about a mile toward downtown? Yeah, How long a little is the over monorail? a mile. And then back again. And like back. It, it connects the Space Needle with a mall. It, it has two, two tracks that run side by side and a red train and a blue train. And when I was a kid and during the World's Fair, you know, very exciting. You'd take the, the red train would go one way and the blue train would go the other, and then they would reverse direction. But <clears throat> downtown is not where you normally are if you want to go to the Space Needle and vice versa. It's, uh, it has some limited utility for tourists who might be staying downtown and want to go up to the Seattle Center and, and museums or who are going to see both the Seattle Center Museums and Pike Place Market or something downtown. But it just runs back and forth all day. And I think it's like when I was a kid, we would just ride it for fun, basically. Like what a treat to park on. I think my parents just didn't want to pay for parking. Park on Queen Anne and take the monorail. So fun to ride as a kid. And, and, um, and, you know, when I was a kid, like everything that had been built in the fifties and sixties that seemed really promising by the mid seventies, it had all fallen into decay and the monorail was kind of grotty. It kept getting caught up there. Do you remember? Like it would get stuck on the track. People would, people would have to be rescued by cherry pickers sometimes. Yeah. And that actually later on, that was a, that was a geometry problem actually after they, after they changed it. But the, but the old uh, downtown station kind of um, was this elevated station that that created a really dark intersection there at 
at um, what would it be? Pike and and fourth, Pike and Pike and fourth or fifth. There was a you know the whole intersection was covered by this uh, wrought iron kind of. which I only vaguely remember. Yeah, that, that's a that's another example of the generation gap between the two of us. Because now it stops at a dying mall, which is what you want. But there was a little <laughs> there was a little alleyway of old taverns that had like neon lights flashing, and it felt like a red light district kind of Blade Runner. It was, and that was and under the station was where um, they would roast chestnuts at Christmas time, and there would always be somebody playing an accordion that was sort of echoing in the. It was a it was a crazy environment to have lost when they tore it all down and built this gaudy eighties mall, um, which was briefly the nice mall. It was cool for a little bit, yeah. and then the nice mall moved a few blocks away to Pacific Place, and then now there are no nice malls. Yeah, the, I remember there was the first food court I ever went to. That was yeah. mall. The, the monorail wouldn't drop you off at a food court, which I think is now pretty much gone. And there was like a, a Brentano, there's some good bookstore there that maybe a Brentano's that Seattle only had one of. Yeah. That's my only memory of that mall. When they, when they originally tore the old monorail station down and built the mall, they had to rejigger the way that the tracks made the turn, um, along fourth, I think. Um, and when they rejiggered it, they got the geometry wrong. So the, oh, is that right? the first time they ran the trains side by side, the two tracks converged a little too much and the two trains wedged. <laughs> they hit each other. They hit each other and wedged <laughs> into place and they had to redo the whole thing. Classic. But did you, uh, did you vote for the monorail? So we moved here and we moved back in 06. So I missed my chance to vote for the monorail, which I would have done so many times. Fraudulently, yep. multiple ballots, yep. dead people. I would have voted to extend the monorail because what fun. What fun. And it was an example of Seattle politics. Um, you know, we, we voted, the, the people of Seattle voted multiple times against the construction, the like city-funded construction of sports stadiums, baseball stadium and football stadium. But they did it anyway. And they did it anyway somehow. And the monorail- It's a limited democracy we have here. That's right. The monorail is the flip side of it. We voted multiple times, and that is to say we voted for- the extension of the monorail. All things monorail. And then there was, um, it was determined that the vote was not binding because other things, uh, unclear why. And then we voted again, and I think voted a third time for it before the people of Seattle were finally exhausted. And the entire time, the business community and and government were really against constructing the monorail and lobbied against it and refused to accept the, the um the, the the vote. Am I right that a lot of it is a funding question that the city of Seattle and or King County did not have did not have tax authority for transit, but they did have authority for the pre existing monorail. So it was kind of an end run around transit funding difficulties. Yeah, that, I mean that still is a problem here in Seattle with the, the with taxing authority. But you know there were so many options of uh, government you know par- participation in it. One of the problems of monorails is that they're expensive. And part of their expense is that they're not widely adopted. So every monorail system it's custom. is custom. And it's a, you know... So, so it, all we have to do to get monorails to catch on is to get monorails to, to catch on. to get monorails on. to catch on. It's a, it's a, it's a terrible problem because monorails are 
in a lot of ways, a, a preferable form of, of public transit there above the roads. Yeah, they're not at grade, yeah. so you don't have to worry about intersections and whatnot. Or you, have to, you don't have to tunnel. You don't have to tunnel. What makes them better than other kinds of elevated railway? Anything, or is it just a choice? Um, well, the, so, so a, a nicely built monorail, you can, you can build on pylons rather than on, uh, you know, on a, like a superstructure, like a, like an elevated railway has to, has to have big supporting, uh, legs on either side because, yeah. you know, the tracks run side by side and they're, they're, um, you know, it's more, it's just m- much more superstructure. If you, there are beautiful monorail designs that are built with, um, you know, even like the one in Seattle often is just on a single pylon. A sufficiently well-balanced monorail, it could just be like a fire pole. Just like a fire pole, exactly. <laughs> um, but also, you know, they the view uh, from a monorail is kind of unobstructed. Yeah. And um, and also, so, and, and we'll get to this more and more, but um, the way you can construct a monorail uh, really uses centrifugal force to its advantage. So every train, as it goes around a corner, um, you know, has a certain amount of centrifugal force acting on it that kind of pushes it against the outside rail. And means you have to slow down? Is that right? You have to slow down. And also it, it kind of, um, you know, as a passenger, you feel, uh, you feel yourself being pushed to the outside of the turn. Sure. Um, and I'm sure there's inefficiencies due to friction. Fr- friction, and there's a lot of lean in the train. Whereas a monorail, you can kind of build to take advantage of that, you know, you can, you can cantilever the, the, um, or not cantilever. You can, you can, uh, just bank the the track. You can bank the track in such a way that, uh, that from the, from the position of the rider, you feel the centrifugal force much more as a downforce. And yet our monorail never goes above. What's the high speed of the Seattle monorail? Yeah. I've I've set up front by the driver. It's like 24 or something. They keep it pretty low. That's right. And, and, you know, and our monorail is concrete and it runs on rubber tires. That's another thing I was going to say. It doesn't have to be metal track, right? Nope. No, we, we use rubber tires on, on cement pylons, but you know, the most exciting monorail, uh, technologies are, are maglev and with, you know, with maglev technology, which is to say that they hover, mm-hmm. you know, using mag, mag, magnetism. Magnets repelling, like magnets repelling. Um, they could go infinitely fast. They could go faster than the speed of light, Ken. Really? They could go 10 times faster than the speed Einstein of light. Einstein was like, speed of light's an absolute limit, except for monorails. Except for monorails. If, they have, for if they have magnets. Maglev monorails. If uh, the juggalos can ever figure out how to give us maglev monorails. I have a friend, by the way, who was part of the board of Seattle monorail project planning. And her take was that it was always doomed because it was just impossible to get over. I mean, water in this case, the ship canal, like there was really, there was no good solution to get it to Ballard. Yeah. And the, and one of the solutions was to put it in a tunnel, but then it's just a train in a tunnel it's not a monorail anymore. And to build, to build that kind of ribbon of track over the, um, over the ship canal would have been, in, you know, an insane engineering feat but i still would have voted for it even if somebody had explained to me how insane this was i'd be like nope yep monorails for tomorrow and so many of us did but uh but and i think i think what they ultimately were going to have to do was redesign the system because 1962 monorail technology and 1995 technology were very different expand yeah you're extending a system but the current system is just a one mile tourist stop right so we're gonna have to build a new one but it 
and you know, and it has, uh, it, there was a lot of opposition to it. And I think a lot of the opposition from the city, um, the city types, uh, was that it seemed ridiculous. Like, um, Seattle has always wanted to be a serious metropolitan area. It has a self image about its self that, that dates back to the 19th century, that we were a city of industry and there's a, why can't we be Chicago? Yeah. There's a self seriousness to Seattle that isn't true in other cities. It's one of the reasons that Portland is kind of, uh, more of a 21st century town than Seattle. Because they stole our whimsy yeah. and it turned out it's the century of whimsy. They're a little bit goofy and they're, and they're proud of it. Whereas Seattle has always been kind of a stuffed shirt. And there was, a, there was actually surprisingly a lot of resistance to it just based on the fact that it was going to make us look silly. Even though in the sixties, it seemed like it made us look like the city of the future. But it turned out that future was maybe 1975. So in 62, yeah, right. it was the future in 2004. Not so much. I was talking to a contractor about induction cooktops. Are you familiar with induction cooktops? I don't know what that is. Um, induction cooktops are a new form of, uh, of stove. Uh, and instead of heating up uh, an element, either you know using gas or electricity to heat up the stove top, mm-hmm. which then communicates the heat to the, to the pan, induction cooking... Um, the top, stovetop stays cold. The stovetop does not get hot. Uh, the the technology transfers the current directly to the the cookware, so the pot gets uh, the you know the the ions in the pot or whatever the 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 atoms get agitated by um, by the in the technology of induction and you know you can't use every kind of pot on an induction right you need special it has to well not special but it has to be metal that is inductive induction compatible and um and it's a it's a phenomenal technology it heats up the pots a lot faster um the cooktop is is immediately cool after you're done good for the cat um but it's it has not caught on and partly the reason it hasn't caught on is it hasn't caught on. Right. Um, people are suspicious. Resistant of the, the yeah. thing that might be, oh, I can tell which six-month period you bought a house in 2021. Even though it seems like the future of cooktops, um, when people go, when, when kitchen designers talk about it, uh, clients are suspicious of it primarily because people don't use it. It's the electric car problem. Right. For 20 years, the tech was there and seemed fine, and, and yet only Ed Begley had one. And so the 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 monorail the 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 quasi ridiculousness of it is largely because most of the time you see them um, in airports. You know they're they're yeah. still they're still kind of a novelty because you only you only encounter them rarely. But there's no reason why they're better at that length or scale. It's just those are the kind of projects where you can get people to pass off on a monorail. Well, no. Monorails are best kind of the way they're used in Seattle right now, which is a closed system, um, either a loop or just a, a A to B line between two points or with, with four or five points. Right, because sightings and stuff are difficult. Multiple trains and multiple routes intersecting would be a nightmare, huh? And also there are no, I mean, to, yeah, to build a siding, to yeah. build a... Um, 
to do any kind of repair work or even to build junctions. I mean, even to turn a monorail from one rail to the next is a is much more of a complicated engineering issue than it is to just put them on four track, yeah. tracks. And so, but again, these are technologies that would, that it, it's not impossible to solve. It would be, um, it would be easier and cheaper if this was a technology that everybody had embraced. Um, because this would just been, it would have been mass produced and in mass production is where the efficiencies lie. Time to go back in time and get Eisenhower really into monorails. Well, back in time is where our show today begins, Ken. I feel like many of our shows start back in time. It's so rare that we start a show in the future. Right. Maybe we should start doing that. Maybe we should, maybe this show should start in the future when monorails are everywhere. Zoom, zoom. You know, one of the things that um, propelled me to run for the Seattle City Council in 2015 was not just a kind of um, frustration that had persisted since the 90s about the way city government made decisions then that you could tell by 2010 had produced bad results. You know, a lot of the policies that the city council enacted in, in 1995 to punish big developers had by 2010 produced a housing crisis. And we had a transit crisis by 2010. Um, and there were, you know, in the, the roads we'd, we'd, Gained in po uh, population quite a bit. Traffic went nuts between 2005 and 2010 even, and it wasn't great before. Traffic went crazy. I mean, when I moved to my house in the South End in 2007, I could drive from my house to anywhere in the city in 18 minutes. And by 2015, it became 45 minutes. It was just, it was just crazy. And, and my feeling at the time was that it was a result of, of bad planning and bad decisions from 10 years prior. But I really wanted alternative transit, and it was a big part of my platform, and I was, as you can imagine maybe, kind of ridiculed for it. You Both, want, well, you wanted zip lines and gondolas, too. You never saw any transit system to steampunk. Well, and it's, it's right, and it's, you know, Seattle is built on seven hills, like Rome. That's why they built a city here, because they were like, oh, it's Rome. They had, to, they had to level six hills, because it had 13 originally. Yeah, that's right. They took a lot of the hills away, but... But it makes no sense. It makes less sense for us to have bike trails everywhere than it does for us to have gondolas everywhere. I hate to say it, but we are uh, we are never going to be a, a universal bike city. We've we've spent tens of touring. millions of dollars putting Although, bike trails in electric bikes. Electric bikes have changed it. You're yeah. right. But if you think about going from the top of Queen Anne to the top of Capitol Hill, well, of course, a gondola, except for those float planes, those pesky float planes. It should go through the middle of the Space Needle. Gondolas and monorails and uh, electric staircases, which which is a technology you actually see. They're called escalators now. Well, yeah, but there are other there are other ones that are like at the sidewalk level, right? That actually are municipal. There are some where you kind of step on, you you put you put one foot on it and one foot on a skateboard or on your bicycle. I'm not exactly sure how they all work. It seems complicated. Yeah. But these were issues, some of these issues were recognized all the way back in the early days of the 19th century. And, and uh, partly it is that roads were expensive to build. Often roads are going through areas where there's not room for a ton of other things, uh, up through valleys. I mean, roads to, to dig out and grade an area in order to build a road, you almost 
you almost immediately, and it's, as you were saying, it's the traffic problem with the episode of Omnibus not very long ago where we talked about how no matter how many lanes of traffic or lanes of road you build, there's always going to be traffic to Induced fill demand. Um, roads always get clogged. And in particular, if you're somebody who's running a factory, if you're somebody who's, who's moving goods to market, um, the more time it takes to, to carry your goods to market, if the, anything that interrupts that, um, it's costing you money. And so there was from the, from the kind of dawn of the industrial age, a recognition or a desire to build better ways of moving particularly goods. Human beings were not the initial. Commuter, uh, who cares about commuters? Commuters. They're, you know, they're, they're living in a, in a coal stained tenement in East London. But like the faster we get this produce out or these widgets out. Right. And building a train, a railroad is all well and good, but a railroad is at grade and it has all the problems of, of at grade uh, intersections and crashes and, and, um, and just traffic, you know, clogged with other people using that grade. Cows, goats. Whole, yeah, troops of goats. Troops of goats, goat satanic herd. goats. You want so, to be up in the sky or under the earth. Up in the sky or under the earth. The two options. In 1821, a man, an, a, an engineer and a civil engineer by the name of Henry Robinson Palmer, who, is, who um, you know, had already been working on road construction, um, came up with the idea for an elevated train that actually hung from, it was, it was suspended from above, a suspension railway. So it wasn't a monorail built on a, on a, uh, on a rail, but was actually hanging down from a rail. Okay. And he patented this design and in, in his vision, it was horse drawn. Where is the horse? On the rail? The horse is on the ground pulling uh, a thing in the air, a thing in the air. And it was you know, the, the idea was that it was much, you know, it was, why doesn't the horse pull something on the ground? Well, you are now able to have your big container of oh, grain. It can be wider than the street. Well, and, and you can have traffic going on underneath it. Well, to some degree, you got a horse. I mean, there's the horse there, <laughs> right? But the horse could be over in a horse-sized track. Right. Cars could, or, you know, vehicles, yeah. not cars, but other horse carts and wagons. could be going by. And this horse is just sort of, or, or team of horses are just sort of, plodding along, pulling this big grain train. And did he see it as, uh, as freight? It was freight. I see. Um, and it was, I mean, Henry Robinson Palmer did, um, you know, actually was a very prominent engineer in the UK for, um, for a lot of the 19th century, building roads and coming up with this kind of scheme. And his railway sort of appealed to, um, it didn't, it, it wasn't really ever built as a functional thing, but the idea of it appealed to the popular imagination because at the time it wasn't, no, nothing was set in stone. This was the dawn of the balloon age. Uh, where are the railways going to go? We've, we've just invented them. Now what do we do? You can't just, you can, it's, it's hard to believe that we are still, uh, using trains that are, 
that would be completely recognizable to someone in, in the 1820s. Um, the tech, it's just like the Fender Telecaster. They, they invented it and it kind of perfected got the Got it right the first time. Yeah. But it, this was the first time anybody would have seen any kind of elevated idea for an elevated, uh, transit of any kind and any kind of elevated vehicle of any kind. Right. I mean, apart from people goofing around in hot air balloons. So it really would have had some of the excitement that we later saw with the invention of the airplane or the helicopter or whatever. Yeah, there were, I mean, this idea had kind of been sketched out in, uh, on paper, but it wouldn't have, the, the public would never have been aware of it. And this was during a time when there was a lot of, um, you know, the industrial nations of the world were kind of watching each other and, and collaborating with each other. And this idea per, uh, appealed particularly to the Germans. Why? Um, well, you know, in the same way that a lot of mathematicians are Hungarians, a lot of engineers are Germans. And you can only account to it because uh, they have very uh, truncated emotional lives. And so, you know... We, we would get excited about our our uh, families or about sure, philosophical po- ideas, poetry. Poetry, chocolate. Uh, the Germans like chocolate, but, you know... They kind of like poetry, I mean... It's sort a of. nation of Goethe. Yeah. It, well, name a second German poet. <laughs> uh, Goethe was just a, yeah. He yeah. was like a, kind of a neurodivergent a genetic sport or something. Yeah, he's, and they, they he's love the, the one. They, they love they can say they have Goethe, but yeah, there's not a lot of romanticism in their soul after that. Is that what you're saying? Well, there's a lot of engineering in their soul. And um, there, were, there were other attempts. There was actually... Um, in again in the UK or you know outside of London, there was a uh, a rail a suspended railway built in 1825 in Chesant that was built to carry bricks. Um, same kind of you know it was a short a short line built to carry bricks like from a factory to uh, to a to a barge. Yeah, and um, in order to promote it, they they carried some uh, passengers in the first trip. Like, ha ha, look, we can actually put people in our brick thing. And it was, you know, it became a popular, like, tourist thing. It would almost seem like an amusement park ride. An amusement park ride, exactly. Yeah. Look at us, wow. Let's go on Brick Mountain. I've never been 20 feet in the air. Yeah. Ah. They all died. And then they all died. Um, but in 1826, uh, a German engineer by the name of uh, Friedrich Harkert, Elberfeld um, built, uh, started to recognize that uh, the industrial area that was coming up in Germany around the Rhine River, um, there were a lot of mines and factories that were, you know, kind of up these valleys. And there was a real need to bring that ore down through the, the smaller valleys to the Rhine and to the Ruhr. And get that stuff on barges. And so, you know, he, um, Elberfeld proposed a railway, uh, again, a suspended railway that was going to come down the, 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 um, come down the river valley of the Whooper River. Of the, I'm sorry, the Vooper River. Home of the Vooper. And uh, the Vooper River, you know, it was going to, it was going to increase his production. And he wanted, um, he wanted buy-in from all the the um, the burgers of the Vooper, as we as we like to say, the burgers <laughs> of the Vooper. 
And, um, and unfortunately the, his design kind of skipped past a lot of the other mines and industrialists along the way. They weren't paying attention. Yeah. And so they, so it, it never came to pass, but, um, but the idea had, had, uh, had been planted in the imagination of the Vooper, uh, and you know the the wonderful thing about the Vooper is that if you follow the Vooper upstream all the way, uh, at a certain point, Upper Vooper becomes the Vipper. Upper Vooper is the Vipper. Upper Vooper is the Vipper. Isn't wow. that wonderful? What's the Upper Vipper? Uh, the Upper Vipper is the Vipper. <laughs> it's the Doctor Seuss Valley. <laughs> um. So the the suspension railway technology kind of bu- bounced around in people's imaginations throughout the 19th century. And Without actually getting built. N- none of them got built. And, you know, they're expensive. And, and particularly once you get into uh, a, uh, a situation where, you're, where they're, not, they're not being pulled by a horse, but they're being driven by a steam engine, uh, the means of propulsion then yeah, become... Is, is it in the train or is it in the track yeah are you pulling it with a with a cable are you uh, is the steam engine at the end are you driving wheels i mean this is before real really rubber tires right um so are you pulling it uh, like how how does it power itself mm-hmm. um in 1886 in greenville new jersey the enos electric railway uh builds a little demonstration railway it only goes about 1500 yards but it seems very cool and possible Um, it's one of these elevated ones it's an it's a suspension train but it doesn't no no it it already suffers from the problem of well who's 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 doing this nobody so why are we doing this um the advantages aren't so apparent um, particularly, you know, building these giant infrastructure projects, cost is like right up there. And at grade wouldn't have been a big of an, as big an issue back then when there's less traffic competing on thoroughfares. The and, reason it becomes and, a, a... And if it's passenger or even if it's freight, you've got to get the people or, or stuff in the air. And which is fine if you're coming from a factory where it's already at that level. That's a, that's if it's exactly coming it. from a silo or whatever. But... You've you got to climb some stairs. Why, why bother? Right. And it, and so, yeah, it's, it's mostly envisioned as a thing to, um, go through valleys where, where there's a, there, where it's a constricted space you're trying to, you know, you're trying to travel through, right? If, if, if there's not, if it's not Spokane, Washington or Salt Lake City, where you can build roads in every direction as wide as you want, um, that's when suddenly it it seems like maybe it would be, maybe there's a use case, a use case for it where, the the extra expense would pay off. Right. The valley is going to have a river at the bottom. Maybe all the usable land next to the river is already horse carts or train tracks or whatever. Right. Or river. If it's all river. Yeah. I mean, if it's all river, I don't know how you build your supports, but. Well, you put them on the side of the mountain. Oh yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, there you go. Ken, what, what can a guy like me whose identity is really wrapped up in my hair do if my hair starts to uh, not conform to my identity. Well, you and I have this conversation roughly once a month <laughs> when, we, when we record this ad. Yeah, that's right. And what do I usually say, John? Well, you usually say that one way to, uh, to address uh, changes in your male hair is to use the service 
keeps uh, to to uh, facilitate uh, hair treatment. We live in an age of science where yes. there are now multiple FDA-approved things you can do to keep your thinning hair and even regrow some. But the problem is, how do I uh, how do I get access to these FDA-approved hair treatment right methodologies? Like, what a hassle to go to the doctor and get a prescription for one of them, or to have to go to the pharmacy and pick it up. It feels like a, a very awkward doctor visit. Hey, uh, could you touch my scalp um, for a second? Sorry, but I feel a little bit. I mean, it's like you, you know, shouldn't feel bad because no. two, two out of three guys get male pattern baldness. It's That's just right. it's just a part of aging. Um, but the advantage of keeps is, first of all, you do the whole thing virtually. You just do a virtual consultation, and then the stuff gets mailed straight to you. Right. Thus, uh, maximizing your valuable time. You don't want to spend your time balding. Balding's not a hobby. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Uh, and Keeps provides generics of the two FDA-approved hair loss products. Oh, so much less expensive. You're going to save a ton of money. And that's why Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of its competitors and a six-figure number of men getting hair loss prevention medication from them every month. Now, how long does it take for this FDA-approved uh, hair loss uh, remedy to take effect? I mean, it'll, it, it, the main thing it does is it keeps the hair you have, but you're not going to see like improvement for a matter of months. It might take four to six months, which I, means the best time to start treating hair loss you're worried about would be today. And the better time would be four to six months ago, but you may not have access to time travel technology. I should note that you have been uh, using your, you've been hovering your hands over your hair uh, kind of as a, you know, an unconscious way of, of describing like, like just while we're talking or all the like time hair coming out. No, just as we're talking about this ad, your hands went naturally up to the back of your head to, uh, you know, to, to a much less bald spot Yeah, to reverberate around the area that used to be a shiny pate. And now is like a, like a faux hawk almost. I was getting a little thin up top. So if you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, do you go to keeps.com slash omnibus to receive your first month of treatment for free? I'd be a fool not to keeps.com slash omnibus and you'll get your first month free. That's keeps.com slash omnibus. Enter in a character, now we're talking about um, the later part of the 19th century, enter in a character, again, a German, and again, from the Vooper Valley, Vooper, uh, by the name of Eugen Langen. I, I wish that my name had that much rhythm. Eugen Langen. Eugen Langen. Langen. And Eugen was, a, was a, um, an inventor and a kind of scion and a, and a fun... Um, swing for the fences type of guy who made his initial fame by inventing the sugar cube. <laughs> Back then, sugar was always a dodecahedron. And Eugen said, there has to be a better way. And you don't, you don't imagine, at least I don't, that, that making sugar into a cube would have required a ton of engineering, but it did. He, he worked on it for, for many, I mean, many years. It makes sense now that I think about it. They do not make each cube individually. I don't know. How do they do it? Is a bigger cube getting diced? How do they do it? Are there a bunch of little molds? Is there like a muffin tray with little cubes? I just realized I have no idea where sugar cubes come from. How do you bind a sugar cube together? Right. I mean, it's sticking, it's crystallizing together with its own sugary self, but you don't want it to be, I mean, it still has to powder up nicely. Right. You want to be able to throw it into a cup of coffee and have it go away? I think I've come around to this. Sugar cubes are not possible. Well, that's, that, that's where we tip our hats to Eugen Langen. Um, 
with his Eugen Langen engine. And you have to imagine, well, and the Eugen Langen engine is something we're going to talk about immediately after the sugar cube. Uh, Eugen Langen was one of the very first people to recognize the possibility of the gasoline engine, which was only being worked on, only being kind of developed at the time. And um, He was building all these things just so he could put sugar in your gas tank and screw up your scooter. I think he may have even been trying to power the gas engine with sugar, but mm. it didn't It didn't pan out. But Eugen Langen um, built the first gasoline engine factory. There was a Eugene Langen engine. Oh. And so the sugar cube was just a Eugene Langen tangent? That was a tangent. Yeah, okay. the engine was... Um, well, became, I mean, he started the first engine factory and then a subsequent engine factory. That engine factory um, became Deutz AG, mm-hmm. which makes engines to this day. They're one of the they're one of the largest engine purveyors. Engine engines. You wanted something that sounded like engine, <laughs> Doctor Rosenjenjenjen. Uh. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I have another engine sounding word. But, um, and so he was an industrialist and he conceived of a suspension railway that he was going to run through the town of Wuppertal. Why Uh, Wuppertal? Wuppertal was on the Wupper River and this was, uh, and, and was, um, was Wuppertal actually kind of an interesting town. It was not actually a town until 1929. Uh, what you had in 1929 was uh, a lot of little towns, Barman and Elber, El, Elberfeld and Ronsdorf and Cronenberg and Langerfeld and Bayenberg and Vowinkle, Vowinkle, Wovinkle. All your favorites. Uh, they were all, that's right. They all bounded, banded together to solve crimes. Um, but they, they kind of incorporated, uh, as one giant town of Wuppertal. And what they are is they're, uh, the Wupper River at that point is an extremely steep-sided um, canyon. And all these towns were little towns along the length of the river. And in, um, in combining to be Wuppertal, they became like this very long and linear town that, you know, it's, goes, yeah. it goes, um, down the down the length of the river, but never never wider than you can throw a, a can of beans. Wow, I mean Seattle's kind of a north south town, but not to that degree. I mean, and, and it's not a small town. There are um, there are you know four hundred thousand people in Wuppertal proper now. Wow, um, and it's outside of Dusseldorf. You know, it's got a um, and it was you know it was a, a mining and a early kind of industrial community and. Uh, Langen envisioned this sort of Palmer-esque suspended railway going as a, as a means of, of, um, public transit through, from one end of Wuppertal to the next or to the other. I mean, yeah, a long thin town of that kind is perfect for a single transit line where you don't have to worry about intersections or anything. You said it's kind of gorge-like, so that... Maybe elevating it up the, above the river is the way to go if real estate's scarce. And crucially, it is a very beautiful town. It's um, it is. It's it's uh, it's called the the greenest city in Germany, and that isn't a reference to its environmental 
record, but it, it just has more green space, more trees than, than any other city in Germany. Let me take a second to tell you where I first, I've never been to Wuppertal, but mm-hmm. I've seen its green spaces. And uh, the first place I saw the, uh, the Schwebebahn was in a, the documentary that Wim Wenders made about Pina Bausch, kind of the leading modern dance choreographer of her time. She, she ran the, the dance theater in Wuppertal. Huh? And Vendors made this amazing. I'd seen some of her pieces in. Uh, there's, there's like an Alma Domar movie that has one of her one of her pieces. They're really kind of indelible. This one has a bunch of chairs getting knocked down one after the other. And Vendors' idea was to stage all her dance things in outdoor settings. Oh yeah. So you go to the movie and they're doing Pina's famous pieces, but they're doing it like in the middle of a traffic roundabout or at the edge of a quarry or in a, a beautiful Wuppertal park. And I love these, these, uh, the, the great performance art of an earlier time. Now the performance art is what? Just, just everybody spontaneously breaks into dance at a, at a wedding. Yeah. Or breaks into protest. Or blows someone (laughs) up at a gender reveal party. Right. Um, no, but this is, there's genuine artistry. It's It's like one of the best dance troops in Europe. And, uh, the great thing about the movie is that it's shot in 3d. And I, I think we've talked oh, about this. Yeah. Like you, I've never been impressed by a 3D movie, but like seeing it, I saw it, on, um, I saw it at Cinerama once in 3D. And because a lot of these dances are shot in a single wide, you know, medium to long shot, instead of in close-ups, you actually, in 3D, you kind of got the sense that you were watching, the screen was like a little box uh-huh. and you were watching an actual dance troupe perform. You just had a box on your head. Exactly. I had I had to wear uh, I had to wear plastic glasses for some reason, uh, and they do the the electric railway is prominently featured. And in fact, they do some of her dances in the very constrained space of the railway cars. And I saw it, and I was like, "What? How have I never heard of this crazy train? Like, what even is this?" And I've been fascinated by the Schwebebahn ever since, although I have not been there yet. It's one of those. One of those engineering quirks that you would think would be part of the popular imagination, and it's such a wonderful construction that it's stunning that that they didn't build lots of them um, because the effect of it and of riding on it is so lovely. Have you been um, on it? No, I've never been, and um, and there's a there's a wonderful movie uh, that. Is you can find it on YouTube, and it's called the. You just Google the Flying Train, and it's filmed in the early 1900s. The train opened in 1901. I've seen this, and the the it's a it's you know early film, and it's just taken th- taken from the train as it as it goes on a trip through Wuppertal. And you look down, and there are all these 19th century or all these early, very early 20th century people just going about their business and it's one of the it's one of the most affecting sort of casual glimpses of life in um you know in a in a bygone era i mean you actually see like you see some kid rolling a hoop with a stick i mean everybody's wearing bowler hats it's People just a going, one- to, going to work or working in their yards and it's just such a lovely view from the train. And somehow it's a, it's an amazing shape. I don't know if this thing got just they restored the hell out of it or if it was in some perfect conditions, but it just it looks like it could have been 
shot yesterday, especially because of the yeah. the high tech hovering camera on this weird uh, overhead rail system. But then it's like you say, it's juxtaposed with this 120 year old daily life and beautiful architecture and horse drawn carts. So it's like you're seeing some alternate Jules Verne universe. And it's a you know it's a it's a pre World War One universe. Yeah. So all of the the many devastations of the 20th century and all the ways that technology got corrupted and became, you know, a like mass murder instead of utopia. Um, and the, you can see why it's the perfect thing. Sorry, I interrupted. No, you. no, it's good. Uh, you can see why it's, I'm watching it right now. You can see why it's a perfect setting for this kind of a railway because it does go right over the river, unused real estate, yep. with pi- steel pile, Eiffel Tower looking steel girders coming down diagonally to the banks of the river. Right. Um, so, you know, using no additional real estate. And you can still move traffic up and down the river. Um, the only complaint you might have is if you thought that the elevated track over the river wasn't pretty. But of course, it's also made out of this wonderful iron construction. If you did it today, it would not be pretty. But maybe at the time, this didn't look pretty to them. Like you've heard of people complaining about the Eiffel Tower. Right. You know, who, who was it? De Maupassant or somebody said, he eats breakfast every day at the Eiffel Tower because it's the only place in Paris you can't see the Eiffel Tower. Um, maybe at the time they would have thought this, they would not have been impressed by the quaintness of it, but it just looks fantastic. Today. No, I imagine at the time it would have been considered very cool and technological. And it, it seems like it lets ample light through. Yeah. Like it doesn't seem like it makes a weird cave like um, main drag through town or ruin the river. No, it's. I think it would have been wonderful then. And the carriages are, you know, are elegantly built. Um, and, uh, and, you know, watching, uh, watching this little film and seeing the carriages, you know, seeing them pass by, uh, it, they're just so elegant. And I think that they actually built a, um, they built a special train car for the Kaiser who <laughs> came and rode, uh, you know, rode the Wuppertal railway as part of its inauguration, of course, he had to have his own car. And I think they still, the car is still there and you can still. I guess that's the tradition of famous people having their own railway cars. It doesn't yeah. make a whole lot of sense on, you know, ur- urban transit like this. But <laughs> right. Do you think the mayor of New York still has his own subway car with like, um, you know, hand added Basquiat graffiti on it? I don't know. Almost certainly Warren Buffett had his, has his own super train. I mean, the fact that. I mean, really, the secret sauce here is, I don't think there's a, this is not a clever insight, but the car is under the track and the whole thing looks upside down. Yeah. And I mean, are you, do you lose anything to this amazing kind of uh, gravity defying twist? Or is this kind of train just as good as one where the track is underneath where it seems intuitive? Well... This was opened in 1901. It still is in operation today, and it carries 20 million passengers a year. (laughs) Um, And if you imagine whatever the population of uh, Wuppertal is, it isn't 20 million. I mean, you know, it's it's uh, you said 400,000 people. So they, the people of the region, use it as public transit. So it isn't just a a a monorail from downtown Seattle to the Space Needle. So if there's no disadvantages, you're getting you're getting this cool uh, steampunk thing at the price of nothing. Um, it until 1999, it was the safest 
railroad in the world. It had never had an accident and no fatalities. And people thought that there was something about it. It was just bulletproof and infallible. The Qantas of light rail. In 1999, unfortunately, there was a, um, they were doing regular maintenance and uh, the construction crew actually, you know, uh, worked through the night and left a clamp on one of the rails um, that they didn't see when they when they knocked off work. But and, it's a place where the wheel has to go. Yeah, and when they started the train again, it hit this clamp and fell into the river. And the, the, um, the whole train was knocked off the right? Yeah. And five people died and forty seven were injured and it was an enormous blow to the right. to the whole system. Um but it was determined what the what the fault was and they you know, in 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 kind of maybe a, a especially German or at least not American way, they actually found a way to prosecute not the workers who had left the clamp on there, but their supervisors. They 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 actually convicted uh, a couple of people of manslaughter for the for the deaths who were responsible for the oversight, which makes sense. Yeah, yeah. right. Although in America, everybody would have been acquitted, and um, sure. You don't. You, you go off the ladder. You get less likely to get a conviction. But the insurance that. companies would have paid seven hundred million dollars. Um, Alangen was so psyched by this um, by this suspended technology that he actually built another train that same year in Dresden, except the Dresden one is a funicular, so it's a suspended funicular. Well, how does that work? Is the 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 funicular track is up above it going uphill yeah and the funicular hangs from it but it's not powered um I guess it's, there's no reason not to do that not to, not no reason not to it's powered the same way other funiculars are which is that they act as counterbalances to one another so the one going down is pulling the one going up and vice versa you know funiculars yeah. conserve power by using that um by using their own counterweight. They're always both going. Right. Always both going. That's the technical term. Uh, there were some other very interesting suspension railways proposed and kind of maybe one of the more interesting in the early 1930s, a Scotsman, by the, and we, you know, we've gone on record on this show praising the Scots. Uh, we love the thrifty, hardworking, salmon eating, golfing Scots. Mm-hmm. So much. A Scotsman by the name of George Benny proposed a um, proposed a suspension railway, and, and this is in the in the 1930s. Except his was powered by propeller, and it was going <laughs> it was going to hang over other railroad tracks. So you already had railroads going back and forth, but he perceived, and this is still true to this day that passenger rail needed to move faster and was uh, often clogged up. So you have a second level, yes. like an HOV lane on top. Right. So you put the fast moving passenger trains up above. You've already got the right of way. You've, it's already train sized. And he, he envisioned that Perfect. they would have giant, you know, propellers. I'm not sure if that's the way to go. And that the, the, the train would be able to travel 160 kilometers an hour. So, um, Remind me again, the Vupertal one is electric. Yeah. And it's the power is on the train. The current is on the train or the current is on the track. 
it's like a third rail situation, like a subway. And you see this a lot in, um, in suspension railways or monorails, like the third rail technology is, is, you know, it's, it, it makes sense as a form of electric power for a train. Right? So the, the train's got an electric motor, but the current's coming from the, the current's track. coming from the track. Got it. Uh, it's not coming from propeller, which George Benny's was. That, and that was actually like a, it was intriguing to people. They, um, I've never seen a propeller driven like <laughs> conveyance where you would have friction of wheels or whatever. Yeah. The, there have been several, you know, one of the, one of the salt flats, uh, world record, uh, like speed record holders, um, is a car propelled by a turbine, huh. uh, like a jet engine. And, you know, the premise of the 1970s television show Super Train was that it was a railroad train powered by turbine engines. And I think the Soviets actually had one, too, a railroad train powered by turbines. Jet trains. Jet trains. Um, and, I, you know, I, I do have a, a picture, a mental picture of trains powered by, by propeller motors, but... That was not one one of the topics I did not research for this show was propeller driven railroads, except for the George Benny one, which was also a suspension. You're right about the Russian jet train. I'm looking it up right now. It's got it's pretty hot. Yeah, it's got turbines on the front. <laughs> it does. That's great. It's pretty crazy. It's like they took part of an airplane wing and just set it on the front of a, of a Amtrak train. The um the suspension train design continues to kind of intrigue people and, um, and different attempts at building them have kind of sort of resurfaced over and over, over the years. And most prominently, um, there's a French consortium of, uh, business enterprises called the Safage. It's an acronym, S-A-F-E-G-E, and it stands for the Société Anonyme Française d'Études, de Gestion et d'Entreprises. Okay. The French Limited Company for the Study of Management and Business. Oh, I was wondering what anonyme meant. Yeah. It just means it's a limited liability limited, company. Limited liability, right. Yeah, okay. Um, and so... You know, and this is a big consortium. It has Michelin and it has Renault, and they're always coming up with fun things. And one of the fun things that they have uh, have tried to develop over the decades is um, a suspended monorail. And yeah, it, what do you do? Rubber wheels? Or? Yeah, rubber wheels. It's kind of um, it's kind of like if you took the Paris Metro, but you hung it from a from overhead. Yeah. Um, and they've built some test tracks. Um, there's actually a, uh, like, uh, Mitsubishi got into the act. As you can imagine, they love trains in Japan and, um, they've got lots of cool, weird elevated trains in Japan. They do. And there are two, um, two safeage trains or, tr you know, trains on the safeage model that are still in operation. One of them is the Shonen monorail. Um, in Kakamura, and then uh, the Chiba Urban Monorail opened in Chiba, and that the one in Chiba is the longest suspended mon monorail in the world, still in operation. So it beat the Vupertal one. You really, really bumped it down a notch. Um, 
but there are a lot of uh, of safeage proposals that you know that got through the first couple stages of approval and then encountered again a problem of it being more expensive to build uh, you know largely because these aren't mass produced they're all custom one off uh, structures. You don't have a bunch of people bidding on sending you cars and rail right. and whatnot. You know, you can imagine that Siemens would be happy to build these things if, if, um, if there were suddenly, if there were fifty urban areas that all said we're going to spend the money to build a suspended monorail or a monorail. Yeah. You know, it wouldn't take long for the industrialized for the industrial train makers to say like, great, we can do that. I mean, all trains are expensive ultimately. Um, it's just some are cheaper. Uh, well, again, one of one of the things I learned in um, running for office and talking about uh, trains and other alternate transit is that people believe buses are cheaper. And um, what do you mean, like per per pe- people just believe that buses? I assume buses were cheaper, right? And that it's a natural assumption. You look at a bus and you go, "Well, why would we build a train here?" Well, just build a bus. Because you don't need to build lay track or whatever. You don't need to do anything to, to run a bus. You just run a bus. And to build a transit system is is it, it just you, you feel like it's a, it's a great expense and also it's solid infrastructure. You it's it's much harder to reroute. Um whereas a bus you can say like turn left, turn right. Maybe tomorrow we're gonna run the bus a different direction. But it turns out over the life of a transit system, buses end up being much more expensive. They're um, cause you have to keep replacing. Yeah. Maintenance is, 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 there's a lot more maintenance on a bus. Buses are at grade and, and in traffic. So they're less efficient. They're, um, I mean, dramatically less efficient. They, they, um, they're just, I mean, dedicated rail on its own grade is over the lifetime of the system, much cheaper than than doing what seems like the easiest thing, which is, ah, throw more buses at the problem. And so, you know, trying to convince the world that, uh, that a safage system is something more than just a novelty, uh, to go from your airport to your parking garage. It's well, it's still an uphill battle. Not literally. It's probably level. It's a level or downhill battle. Um, the most recent, a uh, suspension monorail type of thingamabobber is, and that's what we're calling them these days. Um, was, uh, you know, they tried to, they tried to get one in San Francisco instead of the, instead of they were going to like, it was going to be a component of BART, but, um, but they ended up going with BART, the, the great and beautiful, um, system that everyone in San Francisco loves and cherishes. Uh, most recently it was attempted in Goa, India. Um, the Skybus Metro was supposed to be a suspended railway system that went through Goa. They built a one mile long test track, but, um, somebody was killed in an accident and then they, um, they took it down. So it didn't make it. Um, but otherwise, Suspended railways are a, um, you know, a very, and, and, you know, they're very much more comfortable to ride in because of the centrifugal force issue. They're, they're, uh, there's a, a, a lot of efficiency in the system. As we've seen from the Vupertal railway, they are incredibly safe generally or, or immune to accident 
because of the the fact that no one's ever going to crash a bus into them. Maybe they don't seem safer, though. Like the fact that there's, do you think there's any kind of uh, barrier to uh, passenger entry by the fact that you're literally standing on nothing? If you made them glass bottomed, um, I think it might freak people out. (laughs) There is a famous incident where a passenger on the Wuppertal Railway got freaked out and caused a major to-do. Um, well, I mean, that happens on every U.S. transit thing 10 times a day, so. Yeah, in this case. It I don't was, think a freakout should be disqualifying. Uh, it shouldn't disqualify the system. Yeah. Um, but what happened uh, was in 1951, no, I'm sorry, 1950, um, a, uh, a circus promoter thought it would be a hilarious idea to bring a young elephant by the name of Tufi. Onto the Wuppertal Railroad. Is this, what is this to promote? The railroad? To promote the, the circus? The circus. The circus is in town. And hey, let's put Tufi, who's a who's a charismatic right. young element uh, elephant, on the Wuppertal Railway and drive her through town. Because the railway is the symbol of the whole town. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, oh, and everybody's standing on the, you know, on the side of the street, watch the elephant go by on the train. Uh, Tufi was not thrilled. And uh, halfway through her ride, decided, screw this. And she started rampaging around uh, through the cars and then crashed out the window and fell 40 feet into the Vooper River. Did, what's her name? Poofy? Toofy. Did Toofy survive the fall? Toofy not only survived the fall, but was fine. Uh, but she injured a lot of people in her, in her uh, little, you know, her brief freak out. If you're about to get on the train and there's already a baby elephant in there, just wait for the next just one. Just turn around. Uh, and Tufi, you know, and of course the, 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 the German courts, as we've seen, are not, are not, uh, not afraid to prosecute somebody for being responsible for a crash. I hope they went all the way to the ringmaster. And so they did prosecute the circus for bringing Tufi on board. And, uh, Tufi ended up being, uh, immortalized. Although she lived to be, she lived until 1988. Whoa. The like, secret of longevity is to plunge into well, the Vooper River the, from a... The secret to longevity is to be an elephant. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, she never forgot this experience. I would pay extra to go on this train. I mean, if, if there's a psychological component to trying to get people on public transportation, I mean, to me, it's a draw that it looks cool. Like one of the prototype safage trains is in... Have you ever seen Truffaut's Fahrenheit 451 movie? No. So oh, they, it's in it? Yeah, they use one of the safage trains as just kind of a, you know... Transit of the future, of course, I'm coming, you know, all these bored strap hangers on this crazy aerial suspended thing. And, you know, it just made me want to travel that way. Yeah. Like, even if it, even if it meant, uh, you know, a two seat trip or, um, you know, not having my car radio or, you know, whatever the compromise is, I would take the cool Bradbury train. You would think. And I'm sure this is true, that modern materials science would enable you to build a suspended railway that was very uh, unobtrusive. You know, it doesn't have to be giant concrete pillars. You could build this out of um, modern materials and and lightweight cars and make it a really exciting form of of hyper-modern looking. And I think that, again, the Seattle monorail those of us who supported it thought, how cool! And that was a big part of the promotion. Like, wouldn't this be cool? And the people that were opposed to it were like, cool isn't serious. And serious needs to look serious, and it shouldn't also look cool. 
And that's, you know, that's just another symptom of the death of imagination. That's why Portland's beaten us. And that concludes Wuppertal Schwebebahn. Wuppertal Schwebebahn. Wuppertal Schwebebahn. Entry 1448.DE0227, certificate number 36460, in the omnibus. I think, by the way, now that it's too late to change it, I think it's not Longen. I think it's Longen. So, you know, all the fun we had with Eugene Longen's name. Oh. Not quite as. Did I say Longen? Yeah. Oh, Longen, of course. But um, Eugen Longen. Here, uh, we'll just pretend. Go back through. Individual listeners need to go back and drop in John saying Longen. But none of our jokes will will work. Here, no. I'm going to say Longen a few times. Longen, 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 Longen. Eugen Eugen Longen. Well, do you have a replacement joke for the Longen engine? Le, Eugen Longen is. Um, it might be Eugen. It's probably Eugen Longen. Eugen Longen. He made an ingen. I bet that's what it is. You uh, did I say Eugen Longen? And he turned so, uh, he turned sugar into a uh, into a cube into a lozenge. Hmm. No. Eugen Longen. Eugen Longen. Eugen Longen. It would be a Longen lozenge. The the sugar cubes. A Longen songen. Oh no! Wait, was he the sugar guy? Yes, yeah, he was. Yeah. yeah. He was. Okay. Eugen Longen. Well, I'm sorry to all of our German listeners and anyone who is even remotely literate that I that I bungled that name through the entire episode. I realized about halfway through, and then I was like, eh. Why correct him now? Eh, he's got a good head of steam. When the Germans bomb Pearl Harbor. <laughs> we, uh, you know, of course live in a time when social media is prevalent. Uh Contemporary uh, listeners could follow us at Omnibus Project on mm-hmm. Twitter and uh, Instagram and Facebook and so forth. I'm Whatever. Sure. I was at Ken Jennings. John, you could find via his Patreon presence. Uh, you could send us electronic mail to complain about our German pronunciations at the Omnibus Project at gmail.com. You could send us some um, physical items. Let me see what we have here. To P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. I don't know what's going on here. Oh, this is another is this another birthday card for me? Is it? Maybe. Yes, happy birthday. Hannah has five dollars. Hey! From Stuart, Jennifer, Sam, Claire, Lucy, and Granny Patrick. Well, thank you. The boy, everything's coming up me today. Yeah. It's my special day, John. Uh, when Jennifer says that when she heard women crocheting stuff, did we ask for women to crochet stuff? That seems a little sexist. I hope I we didn't say that. I don't remember. I hope we didn't say that. She heard Jen make us minifigure toilet paper roll covers. Wow, look at this. Cute. This is the, um, this is apparently the good cop, bad cop from the Lego movie because uh-huh. it's a, so it's a toilet paper, crochet toilet paper cozy that looks like a minifigure head smiling on one side, unsmiling on the other. This one is just smiling. I don't know which of us gets the all smiling one. And she even said it's preloaded with toilet paper. Oh, that's nice. Well, I mean, you're definitely of the two of us, the leg, the, the renowned Lego head. Well, do you think I'm? Do you think I have a dark side? Which of us has a dark side? Uh, well, I think we both have dark sides. Not on, uh, not on these Lego heads. Well, one of you're, us. You're not supposed to have a dark side. That's uh, that's not on brand. She also sent us one of these books of historical photos, but this one is of Riverside, California, which I can only presume is the 
toilet paper cozy's port of origin. I can't see because I ripped the label. Yes, Jen is from Jennifer is from Riverside. Thank you so much. This is delightful. You know, you didn't have to send spare toilet paper because we could have. <laughs> we do have that here, uh, even even up in the Great Northwest. Although she may have thought, um, she may have thought that we wouldn't recognize what they were for and we would have put them on as hats. But here's the thing. Each one has toilet paper in it, but then it also comes with a spare. Oh, she gave us a spare toilet I think paper. it may be serving the place of, you know, like styrofoam packing peanuts. It, oh, that's a good idea. Although these are, <laughs> these are knitted things. They didn't really need to be packed with styrofoam. And the postcard is of Uncle Sam holding up some oranges he's very proud of and saying, I grow these myself in California. Some kind of... Uh, period advertisement for um, Riverside, California, implying that Uncle Sam himself is an orange grower. Hmm. I guess maybe metaphorically, the nation is growing its oranges in, in, yeah. in the Golden State. Right. Uh, boy, I do I do like these a lot. Are you going to put these on your toilet, John? Yes, for shizzle. Thank you so much, Jen. Uh, if you would like to hang out with other fun-like-minded omnibus listeners of, of Jen's ilk, was it Jen? Maybe I'm calling her Jen and it said Jennifer. You can uh, look for the Futurelings on any online gathering place, whether that's Facebook or Reddit or Discord. There's a bunch of them. Um, you do not need to send us hand crocheted toilet paper cozies if you want to support the show. For one thing, we already we already have some. Uh, but there are other ways to support the show, most notably... I mean, you could leave a, a, a happy review for us. Oh, that's a good idea. We never ask people to do that. Leave happy reviews and star and whatever else people do. I just saw a hilarious bad review of us on Apple Podcasts, but maybe I'm... Why are you even doing that? Why are you watching? Why are you looking at bad reviews of us? It cracked me up. <laughs> Here's the newest one. John talks out of his butt a lot, but that's part of his charm. Hmm. Ken is Ken. I'm not so sure about that. Wait a minute, you get to be you, but I talk out of my butt a lot? This is my favorite. The the the, the um, topic is, did I send you this? The uh, headline is, John Wayne Ship Story. And then the review is, one star, just get to the point. <laughs> okay, that's funny. That's pretty good. Get to the point. Uh, this woman gave us four stars, but then gave me a hard time for um, for noting that my daughter uh, said, you shouldn't say Sacagawea, you should say Sacagawea. So which did she want? The, she wanted us to go back to saying Sacagawea? I, I think it's irrelevant. She just doesn't think I should be... Um, oh, giving her daughter put, a hard time. No, yeah, putting down this amazing, trailblazing American woman and her daughter. In fact, I need to go ahead and listen to the Stuff You Should Know episode about her. Huh. Wow. I think you can... I think you can... Uh, I think I'm okay. Yeah, I think you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> um... Any other great reviews that you want to share? There are, uh, there are a couple that say, love you both so much, and the commentary before getting into a subject is the best part. Um, any that t- You're just skipping over the ones that are like, I love Ken, but this John guy is a real jerk, and you're right to do it. I did skip that one, actually. Yeah. But yeah. There's, there's probably a reverse one, too, somewhere. Um, or you could uh, tell friends about the show, That's or you could uh, support our advertisers by buying... Um, aluminum-free deodorant or whatever it is they sell. Good, good. Uh, or, most directly, mm. you could send me a $5 bill for my birthday. No. <laughs> no. Most There's a better di- way. Most directly, you could go to patreon.com slash omnibusproject 
and uh, and become one of the supporters who enjoy uh, amazing perks and uh, you're really getting into that a, toilet paper a, cover. You don't even know what you're saying anymore. Well, I've noticed that the bump on the top of the Lego head is a little. You know, it's if you fold it in, it's the height of a Lego bump, or you can make it stick up. And now he's like, now he's what? A Shriner? Uh, I don't know. He's wearing a little, little er- flesh-colored fez. An erect Lego <laughs> head? Hard to hard to even say what's going on here. Um, he's a nipple, basically. Yeah. You can you can he can be a Lego dude here or a nipple. nipple. Lego dude, nipple. Lego dude, nipple. Um, so please, if you're not an omnibus supporter, but uh, you have it in your budget to do so. Um, why not uh, hop aboard? You'll feel good about yourself. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. Or if it did. We hope and pray that the catastrophe, or if it did beyond tomorrow. Yeah, we assume, it, we assume it won't. Yeah. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus. Got a little ASMR sexy, there. Sexy voice. Yeah. <laughs>